Some of the questions we got this question on Monday from someone who wants to know why are pronouns so hard for our kids? <laughs> That's a really old question, great question. Um, pronoun reversal is something that has been an issue for kids with autism for a long time. In other words, um, they don't, they can't use my and your appropriately, and so on. And, and actually, we have a very interesting way of teaching that, but. You know, nobody really knows why it's such a difficult concept, but I would imagine that it has something to do with the lack of perspective taking mm -hmm. that our kids have, sort of <clears throat> the lack of the theory of mind deficit that our kids have, so which essentially means that um, our children have a hard time understanding that other people are separate from themselves. Yeah. And if that's the case, of course, it would make sense that it uh, would be hard for you to understand the concepts of my or your, me, you, and so on. So, um, but it is actually something very easy to teach. And um, what we do is we pair the individual's name mm -hmm. with the pronoun and then gradually fade out the name so the child learns it. And it is one of the earlier programs that we teach, so it's very easy to fix. Infinitely teachable. Oh, absolutely. Okay, good to know, because sometimes it seems so frustrating, and, and for a parent, sometimes you're working with your child, and it seems like they're never going to get it. Um, but infinitely teachable with really qualified uh, people Therapist, doing ABA. Right. right. Uh, okay, wonderful. Good to know. Uh, we have another question that came in this morning. How do you teach a child the dangers of cars and streets and looking? Uh, in this particular case, they say that the child is emerging verbal and knows what cars and streets are, but has no common sense when it comes to street danger. And I want to just uh, preface uh, your answer to this with the fact that while we're here to provide information and for you to be able to, to talk talk to people about the kinds of things you know, we, of course, would never want to disrespect a child and, and make it seem that we could or that you could in any way uh, know specifics, child-specific things to do. So we're going to talk in terms of generalities that are really helpful, Absolutely. but right. um, I know that was one of the things that we talked about before, that uh, being very mindful of the fact that uh, we're not going to disrespect a child by assuming that you guys could write us two lines and that we'll know exactly what's happening. That's right. But, um, but you can tell us a lot about teaching safety, sure, right? Sure, absolutely. And you know, every child is different, and it's mm -hmm. really important to recognize that because, mm -hmm. uh, depending on the child's understanding of other concepts, mm -hmm. it would influence how you work with a child. Let's say for safety, for mm -hmm. instance. But yeah, safety is a big issue, of course, and um, there are a number of different programs that we do to teach safety. I mean, one of them obviously is crossing the street or being aware of that issue. Um, there's other safety things such as strangers mm -hmm. or hazardous materials in the house, those types of things, and they all have to be taught. Um, and really, behaviorally, the, the concept behind teaching it is that the reason that we avoid, like when you're born as a child, you actually have no fear. Mm -hmm. You don't know what is dangerous or not. You would easily, and there's many, many studies going all the way back to 
early psychology. And one of the first experiments in this area was uh, uh, a researcher named Watson actually did this these studies where they showed that you know an infant would have absolutely no fear of let's say a snake mm -hmm. because or fire or mm -hmm. something like that because they have not yet experienced mm -hmm. the resulting uh, pain or negative consequence that comes with those things and the way that they would develop the fear which is really the reason that we are uh, safe or avoid those dangerous things is because we already have the experience or we know that these things are dangerous So we avoid them. We're fearful of them um, Is the, so the way to teach that is really to associate a fearful type of experience with the object mm. so in other words the early experiments what they would do is they would make a loud noise behind the infant like mm -hmm. clapping very loud and pair that with some object that mm. they wanted the infant to fear and that's classical conditioning when two things happen at the same time we tend to take on one takes on the properties of the yeah. other and so um, whereas an infant might have started out not being afraid of let's say snakes um, when it was paired with a startling noise um, then the and you could then remove the noise gradually and then the snake became fearful itself or fear producing itself so with crossing the streets for example mm -hmm. which is one of the safety uh, programs uh, you do something similar to that I mean there you essentially will of course try to get the child depending again on the understanding level of the child to understand sort of what could happen mm -hmm. if a car hits a person and mm -hmm. all of that but in many cases our children haven't yet developed the reasoning to right. kind of understand the consequence that could potentially come from this. Right, it's that whole cause and effect thing that's a very high function you know a, a high executive functioning skill. Absolutely and it's an advanced skill. Right, so, you so know, in the meantime what do you do because your child's a danger. Right and you have to realize how do typically developing kids actually mm -hmm. learn these types of things and the way that they learn this is that oh every time we're about to cross the street mom or dad grabs my hand mm -hmm. and they are so in tune typically developing kids are so in tune mm -hmm. with mom or dad's let's say reaction to the right. situation or their caution mm -hmm. that they take on mom or dad's fear or caution about mm -hmm. the situation and they start to realize like child might go near the stove and mom or dad will say don't go near the fire you know and right. that reaction they take in and they realize whoa this is something I need to stay away from and our, with our kids it's sometimes harder because they're not that in tuned or just aware of other people's uh, reactions right. or feelings or warnings so really it's just a matter of kind of um, exaggerating okay. the, the feeling so that if the like the way that we do it essentially is we practice it with the child and um, of course we'll give them the rules you know mm -hmm. look right look mm -hmm. left so that they know what to do in that circumstance but we also just in terms of safety want to make sure that the child doesn't run into the street right. so we actually will have a therapist whose reaction is fear-based you know like oh no don't go or something like that and or and then the child will start to develop that fear of okay I really shouldn't step off the curb until I'm sure that I've looked both ways and there's no cars coming. So it's really just a matter of exaggerating the normal process where okay. kids learn. And, and that's how you develop um, fear. That's fascinating. <laughs>
fascinating yeah. because I just got that. I yeah. just got that, that sort of missing thing that my son didn't pick up <clears throat> right. on my reaction. That's sort of that missing link there. And if we exaggerate it, then we can make sure that they're progressing with right. this. I mean, we even do this with, um, in multiple steps, let's say with identifying strangers. Mm -hmm. That's another issue, of course. And like, we will have either therapists that the child doesn't know mm -hmm. or therapists um, disguised in some right. way. Um, <clears throat> we'd set, we would set this up with the parents, go to a shop like Target or something and, you know, try to abduct the child. And um, <clears throat> the child has already been taught to recognize certain key statements that are things that they should fear and right. avoid. And so, like, it's a matter of just practicing it and exaggerating what life does normally. Yes. You guys, the Center for Autism and Related Disorders <clears throat> treated my child, and you guys did this with did my child yeah. in, in a Walmart while I was practically on some sort of sedative someplace else. Right. Dad was on the side, and there were three people. Uh, but Dad walked away. There were three people watching who made sure that everything went right, and the, the disguised therapist approached him, and he passed. Awesome. He so passed. He, he came wonderful. over to Dad, or he came he, he uh, said, you're not my dad. He walked away, Perfect. yelled for help, awesome. went and got uh, an employee, and it was wonderful. I about had to be resuscitated. <laughs> but it was good to know yes. that he would pass in a situation when we weren't there. Oh, absolutely. And we, there were a bunch of things that we did before that so that he could practice the skill. Right. So, you know, and then he, he did, uh, he passed. Right. Uh, so absolutely uh, an amazing and I, you know, I should know I should add, because I'm thinking about... You know, these programs are very complicated, and as I said, we're talking about them very generally right now. But, you know, it's very important when you're doing uh, lessons that involve evoking fear, mm -hmm. um, that, we're, that you are certain that the level of fear that you're evoking is not so severe that you're producing a phobia now. Right. So you want to make sure that when the child, let's say, was crossing the street, for example, when the child has recognized sort of what is okay and what is not okay, that they don't become so fearful that they really just never want to cross the street. So it's a it's sort of a balancing act and it is very important to do it professionally and with therapists who know what they're doing because as I said, some you know, our kids do actually develop phobias yes. and then that becomes another problem. Okay, so doing this responsibly Absolutely. with somebody who understands what they're doing. That's fascinating. Uh, I think we're gonna, I've got another question, we've got a bunch of questions here, but I think we should take a little bit of a break, uh, show you this message and we'll be right back with Dr. Doreen Grampichet. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. We're here with Dr. Doreen Grampichet, the founder and the CEO of the Center for for autism and related disorders. And so thrilled to have you here asking you. questions. We've got a bunch of questions that are coming in. I'm gonna put one up on the screen that's come in through our live site. Can you give an overview of ABA and AVB programs? I'm gonna admit that I don't even know what an AVB program um, is. Verbal behavior. Oh, okay. <clears throat> okay, so ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, mm -hmm. that's, you know, it's gonna be hard for me to answer that one quickly, but I will. Okay, you take your time. Um, <clears throat> Applied behavior analysis is basically the application of uh, behavioral intervention. And what that means is every, that, so let's start, let's step back for a minute. Okay. Um, all of ABA depends on um, operant conditioning theory. Operant conditioning theory is basically a part of one of the psychological uh, concepts developed by B.F. Skinner. 
And it, essentially what it says is that behavior is altered by the things that happen before it and after it. That's all it is. And so an example of that would be that, you know, a child um, does something good and is rewarded. And from that point forward, they know that if I do this, the child knows if I do this, I'm going to be rewarded. So the behavior of whatever it is they're doing mm -hmm. increases mm -hmm. because they want to receive that reward um, or punishment, in which right. case the behavior will go down. Mm -hmm. You can also change antecedents, which means things that precede the behavior, um, and that will influence the behavior as well. For instance, any there's a million examples of that. We just don't pay attention to these right. things. For instance, uh, you know, my alarm clock rings, and that's an antecedent for me to wake up. Mm -hmm. So uh, behavior is controlled by the things that happen before it and after it. Now, the concept of ABA or applied behavior analysis is that you take that principle and you. We've now developed that principle into um, very fine, detailed techniques. So, because what we're trying to do when you, when you apply behavior analysis to the field of autism, what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, ha look at our children and in contrast to, let's say, the typically developing child, our children will have certain behaviors that are not enough for right. instance, they'll have a deficit in language. Right. That would be considered a, a series of behaviors, right? right? I mean, speaking and communicating, con conversing, etc. They have deficits in play skills. They have deficits in social skills. Those behaviors we want to manipulate and increase. Right. And then there's a series of behaviors that our kids show that are a little bit excessive, like right. they will tantrum instead of communicating, or they're aggressive, or they have various self-stimulatory types of behaviors that distract them from the world. And those behaviors we want to decrease. Right. And so you have a set of behaviors you want to increase, a set of behaviors you want to decrease, and you apply these principles of behavior analysis to those behaviors, and you work on increasing these by rewarding them, mm -hmm. um, and you work on decreasing these by taking away rewards when they occur and replacing right. them with behaviors that you are more adaptive. So that's the kind of overall concept of ABA. Now, over the years, of course, different, um, more detailed techniques have developed. Mm -hmm. For instance, discrete trial training, mm -hmm. DTT. And discrete trial training is a form of ABA mm -hmm. where you sit with the child and you will give an instruction, and which would be the antecedent. Right. And the child is uh, prompted to respond, or the child will respond. And then if the response is correct, you will reward it. If the response is not correct, you will not reward it. And you do this, you know, DTT has its own kind of rules. So like you do this the first time without prompting the child, mm -hmm. second trial without prompting the child. And typically on the third trial, you wanna make sure the child is successful in his response. So you will prompt or model for the child so that he receives a positive response um, consequence. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a really quick way of defining what discrete trial training is. Right. DTT, or discrete trial training, is a form of ABA. It follows the guidelines of ABA. There are many of these types of things, like errorless is a form of ABA. Mm -hmm. um, pivotal response, these are all forms of ABA because they all depend on the same original concept of we change behavior by manipulating antecedents and consequences. Okay, 
Now, verbal behavior is, and people often confuse this and think verbal behavior is not a part of ABA, but verbal behavior was just Skinner's process as he developed, you know, so the, so the concept of ABA, he realized that he also wrote books on this topic and said, okay, language, language in itself is a very interesting behavior. Yeah. And we have to look at language and divide it into types. And once we've divided it into types, then we can teach it using the principles of, of ABA. And he, you know, if you look at normal development, Shannon, which is very interesting that uh, verbal behavior sort of follows that. Mm -hmm. When you look at normal development, the first thing a child does or an infant does will most likely be imitation, mm -hmm. right? So they will like, they'll look at you and the parent might say, ba 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 ba, and the baby might uh, echo that. Mm -hmm. So one of the forms of language is what, what's called an echoic, mm -hmm. which really it's, uh, you know, you hear something and you repeat it. Mm -hmm. The next developmental thing that happens is what's called manding. And manding is requesting. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, uh, now the baby's at an age where they want juice or something and they'll say that ba 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 might now turn into bottle or something mm -hmm. like that. So the same expression will now turn into what's a request or a mand. That's a different form. The third stage of development, let's say the child's now two or three, they're sitting in a car seat, you're driving, and they'll see something outside mm -hmm. and they'll point to it or they'll just say, Papa! So that's labeling, that's right. called tacts. Right. Um, beyond that, let's say you will get to a point with the child where now the, uh, the uh, type of language usage is more abstract, a little bit more conversational. It doesn't really depend on a visual cue. Um, and let's say you're asking the child, you know, what color is the sky? And they'll say blue or whatever it is. So those, th that's called an introverbal. Mm -hmm. And so these are segments of language and the response could all be the same thing. Mm -hmm. For instance, it could be, I could be asking for something blue right. and say blue, um, or I could be labeling something blue. So I was, you know, a man or attacked and I could say blue, mm -hmm. or I could just be discussing something that's not present and say right. this guy's blue. So the response which we're manipulating is all, it could be the same response, right. blue. But we need to teach it or we need to reinforce it or consecrate it with a positive mm -hmm. in different ways. So we have to make sure the child learns how to echo it, how to request mm -hmm. it, how to label it, how to converse about it. And unless we do all of these different, let's say typographies of the behavior, different mm -hmm. forms of the behavior, the child might learn blue, but not really understand that they use that in, let's say, the, you know, in an introverbal conversation or an attack. They won't really get it. That's what verbal behavior is. Verbal mm -hmm. behavior is, a, it's sort of the breakdown of language teaching and how you should be teaching vocal uh -huh. uh, responses or behaviors. That's really all it is. Mm -hmm. So um, when you do an ABA program, you know, you could be following a verbal behavior pro uh, process, for instance, and making sure that you're hitting all of the appropriate manned responses, the tacts, and in that order because they each kind of develop each, they help each other progress as well. So the most common mistake that people 
uh, make and I hear is, oh, I'm doing a verbal behavior program, I'm not doing an ABA program. Mm. A verbal behavior program is just, uh, it's not even really a form of ABA, it's, it's a breakdown within just the concept of language teaching and it is a part of ABA mm -hmm. so uh, you know and we here even on our skills program mm -hmm. as you know the uh, technology that we have online uh, when you're when you teach various uh, skills then what you can do is you can go back and transfer one of the graphs mm -hmm. to a full verbal behavior uh, format so then you can actually see oh yes okay my child has all like is missing let's say pronouns prepositions or colors or whatever it is but you could transfer that graph and then all of a sudden it turns into oh my child's missing mens and tacts and intervals yes. and so on so it's the same it's sort of a parallel process it's not something that's different in any way and I just want to say that you know as a parent you know I hear all this and and sometimes it can seem overwhelming but the truth of the matter is that if it's you can teach all these things step by step by step and and that's exactly what happened with my child in our home what these things were taught my child was nonverbal and my child's very verbal now oh, yeah. because these things were taught to him in a very systematic way so it, it excites me now I remember early on sure. I would be overwhelmed by all those terms and think how are we ever going to teach all right. these things how right. how is he ever going to learn these things and get caught up right but um, but you, you guys are so good at doing what you're doing and and it is so systematic in terms of uh, of what needs to be taught and then it can be customized to the individual child Absolutely. and that's exciting and it's there's so much science behind yes. each of these things you know like why do we teach manding so mm -hmm. early on because it really um, this is this one of the things that the child is automatically motivated to mm -hmm. do there is motivation in asking for something mm -hmm. you know and so there's a lot of uh, research and science and many many years of development behind why we teach things this way and maps absolutely and the one thing that I, I would ask you to also talk about is the fact that ABA was not designed for autism right but it just happens to be very effective for autism Right. And we know that scientifically. Oh, I mean, you know, ABA is a very old concept. Mm -hmm. you know, in the old days, actually, when I was in the field, when I started in the field, it wasn't even the, the label ABA didn't exist. Right. It was called behavior modification. Mm. And it gradually just sort of morphed into a uh, ABA. And really, uh, behavior modification or ABA has been used across many different domains. You know, one of the very common uses of ABA is in the employment setting in mm -hmm. the organizations where they will use various techniques of ABA to increase employee efficiency, mm -hmm. um, increase, you know, even any workplace, if you really think about it, when we want to improve the morale of our mm -hmm. staff, what are we doing? You know, we will have little events and we will give them gift cards. And mm -hmm. so that's where, you know, we're saying, hey, we're, we want to reward your behavior. It's mm -hmm. all ABA. I mean, mm -hmm. and if you really think about it, Shannon, everything we do is set on those principles yes. it really is um, and so it has now of course been applied to autism and one of the early earliest uh, examples of uh, applying it to autism came from the work of Lovas yes. and uh, you know his when when we took ABA principles and applied them to autism it showed the world oh okay if you use the, these techniques and you do them in a very meticulous
modest fashion and you do it in a very sort of discreet, well thought out, organized process, then children with autism are able to focus on that. They're able to actually change their behavior um, and improve and get much, much better and learn just like any other child. And no one would believe it to look at you because you look far too young, oh. but, you, but you were a part of that original LOVAS study. Oh yeah, I've been doing um, work with kids with autism since 1978. That's amazing. Yeah, well, I, I hate to tell on you because no one would know that to look at <laughs> Thank you. you. So. <laughs> But the, this whole thing of being able to increase behaviors we want to see more of and decrease behaviors we want to see less of, it's right. a miracle. Right. Uh, I call it the autism miracle in my living room. So, uh, which on that note, we should take a little bit of a break. We've got a lot of questions coming in and there's no way that we'll get to all of them, but we will answer more questions after these messages stick with us. Welcome back. We are here with our new segment, Ask Dr. Doreen. Dr. Doreen Grampichet is with us. Um, we have a question here that I'm going to put up on the screen. I thank you guys so much for writing in with your questions. We're going to get to as many of them as we can. Uh, I just want to pose a question, um, and, and I understand you're having a little bit of trouble with a flash player. Uh, there is a thing to download if you're having trouble. But at what point do therapists stop over-prompting children with functional language? Are they taught anything about processing time and giving a child at least two attempts to answer before prompting language? I'm showing that to you on your screen right now at home. That's an amazing question. Like, if, if that was asked by a parent, that parent knows their stuff pretty well. We have some savvy parents yes, who watch oh this gosh, show. Oh my gosh, yeah, That's absolutely. Great. Okay, so uh, at what point do they stop over-prompting children with functional language? We'll start there. Right. So, um, and then the question actually goes on and says, do they know to not prompt until the third trial? Which is kind of an interesting question from a parent because yeah. that's what I just described, which is yeah. sort of the discrete trial model, <laughs> right. which is amazing. So, you know, uh, now that I described the discrete trial model, um, there's, you know, I should talk about the errorless model, for instance, okay. which is another aspect of teaching. And the errorless model, uh, says we just don't want the child to make any errors so let's prompt mm -hmm. a lot and start with prompting a lot mm -hmm. and then gradually reduce our prompts whereas the discrete trial model goes the other direction it says sort of give the child a chance without prompts mm -hmm. without help and if he's making mistakes then correct him you know okay. so that's sort of uh, or prompt him on the third trial so you know, just uh, <clears throat> if you really think about it, when you are teaching a brand new concept, mm -hmm. right, the child's not going to really respond correctly. Right. So why waste time and allow the child to make a mistake on the first trial or second trial? Why not just prompt? And because what you're doing by prompting is modeling for the mm -hmm. child so that he can see what the correct response is and then gradually fade your prompting so he's responding on his own. Mm -hmm. So what we do here a lot of times is we will start out with an errorless model. This is that card. And so we, because we really want our kids to have a positive experience with ABA and we want them to actually um, have the best use of their time. Mm -hmm. So we will prompt the child, prompt the child and, and start fading the prompts and then eventually get to a point where, okay, the child's getting these concepts now, so I can actually move into more of a discrete trial model where I don't have to prompt anymore, and then overall I'm not prompting at all after a while. Mm -hmm. 
um, when you ask the question, when do therapists realize that they should stop prompting or why are they over prompting, that's really something that should be discussed with the supervisor of the program mm -hmm. because while you really want to make sure that the child is successful, mm -hmm. so that's why you prompt, mm -hmm. at the same time you don't want to over prompt because right. the child will, our kids are very smart. They will figure out that if they hold <laughs> off, if they wait, they'll eventually get prompted. Right. So then they become kind of prompt dependent. Yeah. And that becomes a very difficult thing to get rid of. Okay. So that is something that if the parent feels there's over prompting going on, supervisors should look at the situation. Mm -hmm. And this is not going to be across all areas. Like So when we work with a child, we're working on multiple different lessons. Mm -hmm. um, and the supervisor would then identify what lessons are being over prompted what areas and maybe we should really step back a little bit in terms of prompting and allow the child to respond on their own so you know that's really something that is quite important and can be evaluated by the supervisor here's what I'm coming to understand about ABA that it is a creative art that there are all these tools and our, our children are all individual and we're gonna create we're gonna apply these tools in a creative way for each lesson and that it's really case by case and and oh my gosh because yeah. your child might fly through one lesson but need a lot of support with another absolutely. lesson and different children are going to respond in a different way that's so right. there's no be all that's end right. all oh absolutely answer. I mean, there's no like cookbook approach to this right. like you know you might have a child that what you said, very important. Um, when children are developing language skills, like just vocalization, um, a lot of the, a lot of my kids, like they'll have a strength in uh, what's called matching programs. So they're sorting or matching visual things to each other. That's easy for them. It's strong, and so they will not require that much prompting because they know they can get through it fast and they learn it fast and it's visual. But when it comes to verbal types of programs, they have a very hard time and they're like will require more prompting because this is a more difficult program for them. Another aspect of prompting is like the child is different. Mm -hmm. If it's a, let's say a two-year-old, their attention span might not be as much as a four-year-old mm -hmm. or the other way around, if it's a four-year-old that has a lot of self-symmetry types of behaviors, is distracted easily, mm -hmm. which then again goes back to their sensory abilities. You know, like let's say it's a child who's overly sensitive to noises and sounds, mm -hmm. they're going to be distracted mm -hmm. by everything. And so that type of child will not only need more prompting, but they'll need more reinforcement mm -hmm. to stay focused for the same amount of time that another child wouldn't really need that level of prompting and reinforcement just because they're not distracted. Right. All of these types of things come into play when, so you know, a good therapist really just uh, gets to know the child mm -hmm. and understands what his issues are, what makes it easy for him, what makes it hard, when when will he, like a lot of times for me when I know that I'm starting a difficult program for one of my kids, I'll start to really prompt a lot, reinforce mm -hmm. a lot and make mm -hmm. the sessions shorter because I want the child to be successful. Absolutely. So these are things you really have to evaluate. So it really is uh, by the minute. And it brings up a question that we had the other day that I want to get to. Uh, somebody wrote in and said the acoustics of the lunchroom and the gymnasium where their child is having recess and lunch are a sensory nightmare for my child, is what yeah. they said. What can I do to help him be able to be productive during recess and lunch? And they wanted to know specifically, we had a big discussion the other day about are there IEP goals that we can 
can write in to help our child to be more productive during lunch and recess. So it's kind of a two-fold question. So right. the sensory one first, right. that very echoey sort of space sure, sure. that can be so overwhelming for our kids. Yes, absolutely. But it is something that's teachable. But okay. the, the question really becomes, you know, you can ha you with your school, for instance, you can have a certain number of accommodations made for the child, but really, realistically, they're not going to accommodate a single child by changing the entire acoustics of a big lunchroom, right? Mm -hmm. So there's nothing really you can do. There are certain things that you can change in your environment in order to help the child. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is there are, A, there are certain things you can't change and be there are certain things you want your child to adapt to anyway mm -hmm. this seems like one of those scenarios where mm -hmm. you can't really change the acoustic system or you know sound level or whatever it is um, in the lunchroom and or even outside because I mean a lot of our kids have problems with recess because mm -hmm. just because of the noise you know the background noise and mm -hmm. so on so you're gonna have to teach the child to adapt to that Yes, you can do that, absolutely. It's a series of steps. I'll give some examples. Okay. So, for instance, you, you know, two ways that you control it, honestly. One is, first of all, you want to give the child right off the bat other options during that time frame and depending on what's you know socially appropriate in the and and what level your child is because we never really want to do modifications that would stigmatize our children in school but regardless let's say the child is really disturbed by the sounds at recess mm -hmm. is it possible for the child to uh, perhaps have a period of time during recess where they have some headphones on is it possible for the child to go to portions of the playground that are less noisy mm -hmm. perhaps those types of things because the immediate solution I mean not solution but the immediate step would be to make the child more comfortable right as you're doing that then you want to make sure you're actually teaching the child to adapt to this so one of the things we do for instance is we will actually start to tape record some of the sounds that are bothering the child mm -hmm. and we'll start to put those in the background mm -hmm. um, at home. So for instance, the, a lot of my kids are able to focus very well when it's in a quiet room. Mm -hmm. and, but as soon as we introduce any kind of background noise in the room, then they're distracted the whole mm -hmm. time. They can't really focus. So you start with a very, it's, it's a shaping procedure. Mm -hmm. You start with a very low volume on mm -hmm. the background noise and you gradually bring it to, to a point where you see, okay, this is my threshold. This is like, as soon as I take it above this volume, it's distracting the child. And then <clears throat> you practice easy lessons, easy mm -hmm. things that are easy for the child at that threshold level. And then you start to increase the threshold to the point where, and then you continue to practice the child staying focused mm -hmm. and doing the things they're supposed to do as that background noise becomes more intrusive. Wow. And, you know, background noise, of course, could be anything. I mean, you could literally tape the conversations in the lunchroom or in the mm -hmm. uh, playground noises, whatever it is. And eventually, as you do this, then you get to the point where, like, let's say you will actually practice the behavior in the actual lunchroom where the acoustics mm -hmm. are intense. And at that point, the child will have more success because now they've actually learned how to process mm -hmm. the background noise. This is a very important thing. A lot of our kids um, tell me that, you know, later in years, they mm -hmm. tell me that 
the sound of language was more of a background noise for me and back and typical background noises like doors opening and closing mm -hmm. were what the, the child heard in the foreground. It was like more of a prevalent sound for the child and so it was very hard for the children to focus on language, mm -hmm. you know, and I always give this example when I'm doing conferences. You know, when, when right now, for instance, you and I are communicating and talking mm -hmm. and if I was to, there's a lot of background noise, we just mm -hmm. don't hear it. Yeah. There's the air conditioning, there's various things that are in the background and if you switch your mind which is mm -hmm. called set shifting cognitively and you focus on that then you can hear it right but we're so in tune and so habituated to, to listening to language uh -huh. that we don't hear it and our kids don't have that ability they don't have the ability to filter out right. the background noise which and it just is hard for them so it's, it is a shaping procedure it can be done you essentially you expose the child to low levels of the distracting noise and you gradually increase it to the normal level that's awesome yeah I love that and then for the other part of it in terms of there was a big discussion earlier this week about IEP goals for mm -hmm. recess and lunch and oh yeah and on the myriads of things that we could suggest depending on where the child is is there anything that you'd like to address in terms of there's those? we have a million different IEP goals that we set up for recess for lunch um, for all different you know uh, periods of time at school in between the mm -hmm. classes in order to make those goals actually happen and in any IEP you have to write who's responsible for this so of course it's easier for us because a lot of times we will have a therapist mm -hmm. or a shadow in the school so that we can actually work on those types of goals and that you know but if you do have an IEP and you don't necessarily have your own staff in there then you're going to be asking the school to provide an aid um, during lunch during recess in order to make these things happen what are some typical goals oh my gosh there's a million of yeah. them anything from you know being able to sit at a table and have lunch with other children without mm -hmm. grabbing their food mm -hmm. um, or you know throw you know giving your food away or whatever it is appropriately lunch behavior. Um, if it's a higher functioning child, then we're talking about appropriate communication and conversation during lunch. Mm -hmm. um, recess, yes, of course, there's a million, you know, how, goals and every aspect of recess. Yeah. I mean, how does a child identify uh, what they want to do mm -hmm. during recess because there's 10 things happening. Right. How do they approach a group of children to ask whether they can um, get involved? Do they know the, the games and types of activities that are going on? I mean, you know, we want our children to engage and be able to do what all other children are doing. Yeah. So you have to take those skills teach them individually at home mm -hmm. where the child is focused and is able to practice and then you take them into the school setting and, and you just sort of generalize them there and implement them. Wonderful. We've got so many questions here and so uh, I apologize that we're not going to be able um, to get to as many of them as we want and there was one in particular that I wanted to get to um, that Somebody wanted to know, their question is, what influence has technology had on our kids uh, in the, our, <coughs> our kids with autism in the era of uh, 
in the area of perseveration. Um, she says, I, I assume it's a mom. Uh, I shouldn't, could be a dad. I wish that I could eliminate all rewind buttons on all my electronics mm. because there se seems to be no end to how many times my son will repeat favorite scripts from favorite shows or favorite sounds from favorite songs. Yes. It drives me nuts and the nuts is in capital letters with two yeah. exclamation points. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what what do we know about technology and perseveration and, and what can this mom, is there anything we can be talking about to help uh, help ourselves when our kids perseverate with things like that? Sure. And you know, technology is good and bad. Yeah. I mean, if you look at our own <laughs> lives, right? I mean, now you everybody has an iPhone or whatever, yeah. and you think to yourself, how did I even survive without this before, right? So <laughs> to some extent, we're all perseverating on technology <laughs> right now. But having said that, um, Technology is also very interesting for our children. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not, I don't know that anybody's really looked at why, but there are a lot of children who will learn more <clears throat> from a computer than they will from a person. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that has to do with the fact that it's easier to focus on a screen than yeah. it is on someone's eyes, for our kids at least. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps it's more controllable mm -hmm. when they focus on a screen. So I don't, I have, you know, both feelings about technology with our kids because one of the things we're doing, Shannon, is that we are actually developing games and resources for our kids online so that you know if they get on the computer for instance um, then they're actually doing activities that will be educational and helpful to them and the games are different from games that are out there because our games are really based on those principles of ABA that I was talking about. So it gives the child prompts, it gives them rewards, it gives them a certain number of times to make errors, all that sort of stuff. So we've, it's, you know, embedded in the game. It's cool. Now, it, it's, they're Very awesome. Cool. They're terrific because, I mean, if you think about it, if our kids could actually learn a lot of these things on their own, great, you know, why not? Now, having said that, um, one of the things that this parent wrote is the child repeatedly, like I, I know I, hundreds of kids, they will repeat a section on a video or yes. DVD like over and over and over. Okay. So let's put, it, put away the, the actual what it is they're perseverating on okay. because it could be video, it could be technology, it could be anything, right. right? I mean, I have children who are perseverating on the wheels of a truck right. or children who are perseverating on water, yeah. uh, playing with sand, whatever it is, they're perseverating on it. And this takes us back to asking, why is the child perseverating on this thing? And there's some aspect of um, obsessive compulsive behavior or OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, which is common with autism because that that involves when we're when we have obsessive behaviors compulsions occur and compulsions are really perseveration mm -hmm. you perseverate on something mm -hmm. why do we do that the reason is because we're trying to maintain gain some form of control over our environment and reduce our own anxiety mm -hmm. and that's the reason I think that a lot of our kids develop these sort of perseverative behaviors routines um, rigid you know formats of things have to be a certain way they're trying to maintain some sort of control over their environment you know, and I could talk about that for hours because I feel like our kids really don't have a lot of control over what happens yeah. to them. So the short answer to this is 
any behavior, whether it's technology or anything else, that's perseverative in nature, it has a positive component, which is it makes the child feel a little bit more calm, a little bit less anxious, a little bit more safe. Mm -hmm. But it has a very strong negative component, which is uh, the child is so engaged in this perseveration that they're not focusing on anything else right. and they're not learning from anything else, okay? So limit the perseveration. In other words, what would you, if you're, and I always tell this to parents, if your child was a typically developing child, mm -hmm. what would you uh, say is an appropriate amount of time to be on the computer, mm -hmm. let's say an hour a day, mm -hmm. you know? And then limit your child to that same amount. And <clears throat> the rest of the time, Either you're going to have to block the child from going towards the computer or video or whatever it is, or you're just going to have to remove it. Right. And don't worry if the child uh, loses it and gets very upset and angry and so on, because remember, this is something they were sort of depending on to calm mm -hmm. themselves. But make sure that you are offering the child another activity that is also calming, mm -hmm. that's perhaps more adaptive, more appropriate. Mm -hmm. Could be anything, right. as long as there, you know, there's someone watching over them. It doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. But don't take it away completely because you're concerned about the perseveration of it. Okay. You know, limit it to what would be normal. In fact, if you take it away completely, you'll never really be dealing with the perseveration issue mm. because it's just not present. Then the right. next time the child goes to someone else's house, they'll perseverate. Next right. time they have access, they'll perseverate. So you you have to deal with it. Yeah. And the way that you deal with it is you just limit it. Now, if it's a child who's repeating, you know, just hit, hit, hitting the uh, repeat button, you have to stand there and block it. The child should be allowed to watch it for a certain period of time without repeating it. And that's that. Or if they really want to repeat it, perhaps you can use it as a motivation okay. and have the child request for you and say, uh, can I see it one more time? And then if they say that, you'll show it to them. And you won't do it 10 times, you'll just do it two times perhaps, or three times. Just think about what is the typical behavior that you would like this to turn into, and then you shape the child towards that. Which is very common sense. I don't know that right. I would have thought of it that way, but it's very common sense approach to it. Right. Wonderful. I think we probably have time for one more question before uh, we have to let you go. Um, Okay, uh, there's so many questions to choose from. Uh, but I want to ask a question for somebody who has an older child. Um, this question is, uh, I'm going to put it up here for everybody. Put this one. Hi, I'm a mom of a soon-to-be 20-year-old and an advocate for children and families. The wave of children with autism is getting closer and closer to transition age, and no one seems to be adequately preparing for them. What should parents and agency agencies be doing together, particularly for kids on a more functional track, to assist in preparing them for life in the adult world. We, you know, it's a, oh it's a frightening gosh. thing for all of us. <laughs> yes. um, the, the idea of transition. Absolutely. Um, and, the, and the sheer amount, I mean, there's so many kids now, um, but then as the number grows, the sheer amount of kids in the next few years who are gonna be transitioning to adulthood. That's right. And how do we get prepared? That's right. And, you know, historically the focus of ABA has always been on younger children, mm -hmm. just because the applications in the early days were with younger children but the truth is you know there's uh, many many more uh, research articles and publications showing the effect the positive effects of ABA with adolescents and adults so 
um, we really need to develop more uh, opportunities mm -hmm. for our adolescents and adults. Now, we have at CARD a, what we call CARD 2 program, mm -hmm. which is for our adolescents and adults, but you, um, it's a very different program than the sort of early program because it's not what we consider a comprehensive or intensive early intervention program. So it's more a focused program. Nevertheless, it goes through multiple stages. And I'll just briefly talk about that. Um, when you're dealing with an adolescent, again, this becomes really critical. It's like we have adolescents or adults that are not even able to communicate yet and they have developed severe behaviors as a result of not being able to communicate mm -hmm. and so at, on the one hand and on the other level we have very high functioning adults or adolescents who are actually quite functional and perhaps they're just experiencing some depression some anxiety from a lack of social skills mm -hmm. i mean so there's a huge broad uh, spectrum mm -hmm. when you when you start looking at yeah. our adolescents and adults now what we've realized that you basically have to go through a series of things and you start with always uh, challenging behaviors because if there are challenging behaviors um, everything else is kind of uh, not able you can't deal yeah. with other stuff right yeah. so you really just need to first deal with challenging behaviors and if the individual is able to express themselves typically these challenging behaviors reduce go down quite significantly because now they have a functional use of language mm -hmm. and they can uh, use language instead of you know tantruming or hitting and so on so you take care of the challenging behaviors and then you start going up to let's say functional uh, communication and functional communication is just sort of getting their needs met mm -hmm. being able to communicate what their needs are and so on and you progress from there and you will you know at the highest level we're teaching our kids things they need for college or yeah. vocational skills right. um, you know a lot of our kids it's very interesting actually because we forget that our adolescents and adults are adolescents and adults. they're adolescents they're just like anybody <laughs> else they also they 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 have habits that have become ingrained mm -hmm. they will get upset and angry when they're bored I mean there's certain things and we see like when you teach the adolescent a vocational skill that they really love like some of my kids like carpentry or whatever it is you yeah. know they stop having those challenging behaviors yeah. because wow now they feel really good about themselves they're producing something they're part of a job they're active they have motivation and goals and all of that sort yeah. of stuff so it really is critical that agencies start to develop more programs for our adolescents and adults mm -hmm. the transition period can be easy if you are able to help the adolescent or adult just get into the things they're interested in mm -hmm. it's the same principles you know use better communication instead of challenging behavior start to actually acclimate to their environment pay better attention you know if you can if you if we can take these programs and develop them more mm -hmm. for our adolescents then the transition period is nothing it's actually quite easy but i really feel for this parent because we the whole you know society we are so so unprepared for this yeah. and there is just 
really, uh, if you think that it's hard to get into a young ABA program, oh my gosh, for adults yeah. and adolescents, it's almost impossible. I mean, there's very few programs that are actually even focusing on these uh, yeah. individuals. And whereas if you do, the effects are phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I'd like to remind everybody, though, that you have been working with that population oh, yes, for a absolutely. long time and that they can go to centerforautism.com, click on the locations tab, see if there's an office near you. And I also want to touch briefly on the fact that there are some amazing lessons and skills that are for, I know a lot of people tend to think that the skills program, which is the online curriculum that you have developed over 20 years. Yes. Um, and there are some amazing things in there that aren't just for little kids, that I personally am a huge fan of the executive functions curriculum. Yes. And when I read through it myself, it changed how I looked at a lot of different things. I think it's a great program for any teenager uh, on the spectrum, not on the spectrum, anywhere in the mm -hmm, world yeah. to prepare them to be successful right. in life. Right. And especially for our kids that are the, and that high functioning population that she's talking about, I think that that executive functions curriculum and the cognition curriculum and the social skills curriculum totally applies, yeah. are amazing. Yeah, I mean, and the programs and skills are go up to a, a mental age, you know, a chronological and mental age of eight, right? But when we when you talk about that, like with typically developing kids, their their actual age and their mental age is the same, which is why our our IQ is a hundred, right? Mm -hmm. It's the mental age and chronological are the same. Now with our kids, their chronological age is getting higher and higher, and their mental age doesn't always develop mm -hmm. at the same rate. So uh, you could have a fifteen year old mm -hmm. who really is not performing the tasks that a six-year-old would be or is not is at that mental age mm -hmm. so skills is very appropriate for our adolescents and really it's just about making those two the mental age come closer to the chronological yeah, yeah. there's a lot of things in there there's you know and I, I don't want to ignore the very very higher functioning Asperger's kids who are older and so on because their issues are completely completely different right. um, you know they have a lot of issues around depression anxiety and so on because they start to see themselves as not fitting in just yeah. like any other child it's a hard time. and all of that sort of stuff can be supported as well with ABA when you can really start to teach the kids how to uh, feel better about themselves how to see things in their environment as a little bit you know more accurately and not necessarily think that the world is making fun of them or right. that they just don't fit in and so but I mean all of these things are possible but it's harder just because so many agencies don't work with right. the adult population. Absolutely. Well, we hope that that will change and that more people will pay Absolutely. attention to the kinds of things that you've been doing for years with Thank that you. population. I hope so. We're we're essentially out of time here, but I want to uh, stop for just a second and thank you for being here. Oh, it's thank my you pleasure. for your work that you have been doing thank in this you so field. Much, yeah. You truly are a visionary, and we look forward to you being here every week. For those of you who wrote in questions um, that we didn't get to, we'll keep them in a pool of questions, and we'll look forward to more questions. Uh, several people wrote in the same kinds of questions, so we'll weed that out. Uh, but we want you to know that we hear you and that Dr. Doreen Grampy will be back with us next Wednesday Looking and for the foreseeable future I love it. every yeah. Wednesday. I'm so excited to have you thank here. Thank you. I, I thank enjoy you. this a lot. This is what I wish I was doing all the time. So <laughs> well, thank you.